Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, where is the teaching of the most profound law to be found in the absence of the Buddha? Do you think it's in the mountains, or in the streams, in the lavatories, or in the horse stables? Funny that you're asking me. When not in the presence of the Buddha, you are the one I turn to for the teaching. Where do you find it? Hmm. In some ways, I suppose I see it all around me all the time. In others, I find it in my memory of the Buddha's great sermons that shook heaven and earth and delighted man and beast and God alike. Though one day, I know I'll forget it. I know it will not cease to be true. I wonder what will happen when everybody forgets. How can that which never ceases to be true ever be forgotten? Well, we must have forgotten it before the Buddha came along, right? Does not truth need preaching? Maybe the Buddha himself is truth preaching truth. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we have something a little different for you. We will be taking a single specific concept in Buddhism and discussing it at length and in detail. This week's term is Dharma. What is Dharma? What are the different meanings of Dharma? And how do these meanings change over time? We hope you enjoy. So let's get started. Big question first, what is Dharma? Dharma is a Sanskrit word that comes up not only in Buddhism, but also in the Brahmanical traditions, alongside which Buddhism developed in northern India and Nepal. The meanings and uses of this word are incredibly varied and nuanced. Scholars of Buddhism in the West, even today, work tirelessly to document and analyze the different uses of the word Dharma in the Buddhist textual tradition. As we will see, there are at least seven different definitions and uses of this word in the sutras. And that doesn't even quantify the numerous uses of the word in the Brahmanical tradition. That alone is one of the largest barriers of entry for Western readers of Buddhist literature. Knowing what the word means, knowing when it is used in a way that is Buddhist and not Brahmanical, and knowing if these nuances made it through to our English translations are all incredibly difficult. I will say, as one who's just been trying to read along, I find... I usually can think of, I can get a bit of a meaning of a word that I don't know through context, but Dharma has just failed to be translatable without a guide. Like, I don't understand. I've been trying to read some Buddhist stuff on my own and not understanding what they mean when they say Dharma just makes it impossible. And what makes it even harder is that there are different schools that interpret the same texts according to a different usage of the word dharma at any given point. Because these texts can make sense with one definition or use and another definition or use. And all of this is informed and loaded by that particular person's or that particular school's interpretation of dharma in that specific text, but also in the greater framework of Buddhism. So... Let's keep going. What are the different meanings of Dharma in the Brahmanical traditions and the Buddhist tradition? Yeah, so in the Brahmanical traditions, which developed into modern-day Hinduism, 
Dharma refers to the realization of one's duty, as prescribed by one's place in society. However, while this is loaded with caste system values, this realization of duty is not so Kafka-esque as one might think. It is said to be a realization of one's purpose in life, and thus a realization of what it means to be alive. Indeed, the entire Bhagavad Gita, a part of the Hindu holy epic known as the Mahabharata, is the story of a character named Arjuna struggling to accept and carry out his duty, or dharma, as a warrior when a righteous war breaks out between branches of his family. Hindu deities have to intervene and convince him to act, because of course choosing to do nothing at all is still making a choice. And it is a really bad one when you have the chance to fight on the right side, as Arjuna does. In the end, Arjuna carries out his duty and realizes his potential and his purpose and his place in the entire universe. In Buddhism, the definition of dharma changes significantly. It is on the grounds of their definitions of dharma that Buddhists and Brahmanical tradition subscribers differ. In his article, um, He Who Sees Dharmas Sees Dharma, scholar Rupert Gethin identifies at least six uses for the word dharma in the early Buddhist texts, not even in the later ones, but just in the earlier ones. These meanings are the teaching of the Buddha, good conduct or good behavior, the truth as it is realized through Buddhist practice, the underlying law or order of nature, any characteristic or quality that something has, or a thing in reality. As you can see, all of these definitions are very, very, very close together, and they are very subtly different. So it's mainly up to scholars of Buddhism to really split the hairs on what's going on with each individual use, but you can see that it boils down to how Buddhists view capital T truth, or how they view a specific thing in the universe. So that being said, Dharma with a capital D, as we'll discuss, is the law, is the capital T truth. And Dharma with a little d is just something or a quality of something. So we won't be getting into the reasons as to why there are so many meanings or how these meanings changed between Brahmanical traditions and Buddhism. That is a lot more messy than I can even explain to you, and it wouldn't even get us far in understanding these meanings. But as a general rule, if you're reading a sutra and you see Dharma with a big D, it's referring to the first four definitions I listed. And if it's written with a small d, it's referring to the last two. I know that doesn't simplify much, but it's helped me, at least. I think this is something where it would be helpful to go through examples at some point. I get that big D Dharma refers to big T truth and buddhism but the difference between the teaching of the buddha and good conduct or good behavior is really important for knowing what a given sentence using this word means and i don't are there context clues to help get further into these definitions is there uh, or is i guess how do i tell between which one which given meaning I should be ascribing? Like, is that even a possible thing for a layman to do? I can offer a um, doctrinal clue to help interpret Dharma, but unfortunately, there's very rarely contextual clues other than something you might have to pick apart in the Sanskrit. 
oftentimes the context clues in the text itself don't come through in English translations. But the doctrinal clue that I'm mentioning is the doctrinal view of the extent of the Dharma is not only that it's infinite and unconditioned and not subject to impermanence, but it's um, embodied through every single constituent piece of reality. Uh, this is something that we will continue to discuss because this is a later development in Buddhism. But ultimately, the idea is that you can understand the capital T truth of Buddhism by extreme concentration and contemplation on anything. So if you take a meditative perspective and, a, and an examination type of perspective towards literally anything, it could be a cell phone, it could be a tree, it could be sadness itself, it could be anything. You come to realize that it's subject to impermanence. You come to realize that having a desire for its permanence causes you to feel suffering, but stay with it long enough. You come to realize that suffering does have a solution, and you realize that part of the part of getting to that solution is changing your view, which then changes your speech, actions, thoughts, livelihood, etc. And before you know it, that's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So the argument here is that like, it's permissible to use Dharma as a word to refer to a thing in reality as well as capital T Truth because there's no distinction between capital T Truth and lived, examined reality. But there is a distinction between our interpretation of that reality and capital T Truth. So the argument is that we can't understand the Dharma most of the time, us lay people, by examining a thing in reality because of our own delusions. These include delusions of having a self, delusions of having a soul, delusions of permanence, delusions of our categories that we impose on the world being meaningful. And um, of course, through meditation and examination and concentration on a thing, eventually someone comes to realize that these are false. The most famous legend of this, indeed, is this thinker who has been named Bodhidharma. He's the first patriarch of Zen Buddhism. And he was dissatisfied with a lot of the other practices and teachings going on around him in his time period. And so he set off to meditate in a cave for nine years. My professor here, he calls that practice watching wall television. Because Bodhidharma spent nine years just staring at a wall, trying to figure out capital T truth by staring at this wall. And he was so committed and so fervent in his practice that one time he fell asleep. And when he woke up, he was so upset that he fell asleep that he cut off his eyelids. And therefore, he could never stop examining the wall. He could never stop meditating. To that end, he actually became a legend. He became a myth, and he became the first patriarch of Zen. So it's possible to overcome this pavement that is paving over the true nature of reality and see Dharma for what it is, embodied in every Dharma. I hope that context shows that the first Dharma I used was capital D. Capital T. Or yeah. D. And then the second one was little d. It's possible to penetrate that, but it's very difficult. So I hope that that kind of helps show that there are a lot of subtly different uses in an argumentative way or in a textual context way, but they're 
they're all actually pointed to, I would say, one thing. And, and that's what I just explained to you, is that Dharma is embodied all the time, everywhere. And it is actually just on us to come to understand it somehow. So that's why it has so many meanings, then, would be because it can be found in so many different ways. Exactly, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so this definition, for example, of good conduct and good behavior, that's very much an older Buddhism use of the term. And that's not to say that later Buddhists are badly behaved, but it is to say that, as we've talked about before, the earlier emphasis on morality as a pillar of enlightenment gets reinterpreted and redefined in later Mahayana traditions. So yes, there are hundreds of rules and precepts for monks to follow, even in Mahayana, but as you'll see in the lived religion, it's kind of changed what morality means. And so that's kind of, that's one that changes over time. The other ones are doctrinally loaded as well and will be subject to change as Buddhism develops. So let's talk about how things are developed. How do the Buddhist uses of the word that you have just listed change over time? Yeah, so as Buddhism develops in East Asia, the distinctions between Dharma and other concepts in Buddhism fall apart as if it was not difficult enough already to understand dharma. Now it starts to mean those six things and other things as well. (laughs) But that's because scholars and Buddhist thinkers all throughout history have had to fit together dharma with concepts like emptiness and non-duality and karma and Buddhahood and nirvana. In some ways, each of these things constitute the singular capital D dharma, but In other ways, all of those individually are various lowercase d dharmas. And here you can see that the argument that the dharma embodies itself in every single everything. Because, for example, emptiness can be capital D dharma and little d dharma at the same time. But because of that, because of that interpretation, dharma becomes an interchangeable term with all sorts of different Buddhist concepts. For example... In many of the sutras, capital D Dharma becomes equated to the Buddha himself and his life. So it takes a less, less, less literal interpretation on the life of the Buddha and starts to interpret the life and his sermons as, as all being the Dharma speaking to us, as if the Dharma has like some sort of cognitive agency or some kind of like monism that allows it to preach to all of us by means of the Buddha's life. Or, in other ways, it collapses the distinction between the Buddha as an individual historical man in our lifetimes and the Dharma as the unconditioned permanent truth of reality. So it's a very different and interesting way to look at what the life of the Buddha actually is and how the sermons, how the sutras, kind of reflect it or embody it. Part of the reason why this distinction has collapsed as well is because people look at his life and see that he lived the Dharma by example. And we only need to look at his life and his sermons to find capital D Dharma or capital T truth. So the more that Buddhist thinkers and scholars begin to look at the real world from the perspective of Buddhist teachings throughout history, they start to see things in a very different and fascinating way. For example, esoteric Buddhism, 
or uh, which is a branch of Buddhism that we will look at more deeply in the future, holds that every small d dharma constitutes a world text. So every small d dharma is like a letter, and the entire collection of letters is the world text. And the world text altogether is the capital D dharma of the universal Buddha Vairochana. We haven't talked about this character Vairochana yet, but um, he's one of the many, many Buddhas out there. And this world text is said to be his dharmakaya or his dharma body. Buddhas have three bodies. We'll talk about that another time as well. Um, but one of these three bodies is the dharma body. This is a reflection of the collapse between the distinction of capital D dharma and little d dharma. So as human beings, we are living and participating in the writing and recitation of that world text by and of and to and for Vairochana, which is constantly preaching itself to itself. And if you don't understand, if you have no idea what that means and what's going on with this school of Buddhism, you're on the right track. It's called esoteric for a reason. It's, it's not meant to immediately make sense, and it's meant to be a mystery in some ways. I will say I'm looking forward to talking about that branch of Buddhism quite a bit. This is quite a popular branch because they also engage in the practices of the three mysteries. Uh, so they practice mudra, mandala, and mantra. Mudra are body poses, which are said to make you into a Buddha in real time. Mandalas are images which are meant to live and be and represent holy Buddha heavens or holy places in which meditation goes on. And mantra are magic speeches or divine spells in Buddhism that afford you some sort of merit or good karma and further collapses the distinction between you and the Buddha because you're sort of reciting the same words that the Buddha said while he was alive. All of these three mysteries are focused towards making you into a Buddha right now and right here. And those practices are very popular among Buddhist communities all over the world, but they've become very popular in the West in a pop culture sense. And certainly they're also being employed in the teaching of yoga in the modern era. Mantra and mudra and mandala are used in meditative practices in yoga as well. And so this is a very important and re relevant thing that I'm excited to talk about as well. We'll get to that in its own time. Going back to the word dharma, it's really interesting to me that this word dharma has come to have so many meanings in a practice that, based on my reading, seems to be generally very precise about the meanings of its words. Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually had an entire graduate level seminar about the karma of words. How does Buddhism handle language? How does Buddhism handle speech and things that are written down? How do these reflect karmically? And how does this view of language affect the production of culture in East Asia over time? What you find is that they're very precise and specific, and they're very broad and vague about how they view speech and writing and language altogether. Um, this school of Buddhism that I've just discussed, esoteric Buddhism, they view language in quite an interesting way. They view speech and sound as physical and material actions. So 
just the same way that stone and water and wood are all material things, sound also is a material thing. And because of its materiality, it has the power to be delighting or it has the power to be a little bit unpleasant. It has the power to hit someone in a certain way such that it enlightens them, furthers them on the path, or it has the power to hold them back, to rub them the wrong way, etc. And um, I think that those of us who are sensitive to certain kinds of sounds or certain kinds of things, or, or, or that we really like certain kinds of sounds, like people who like ASMR, I think that we can kind of agree that makes sense with our experience. But for this, materiality, it's an interesting way to look at sound because it just kind of, you can't touch it, you can't see it. So how do they think of it this way? Um, but that's a digression. Going yeah. back to the word dharma and the vague way that we look at it, because it is a constituent of reality and is also all of reality, it can be anything and it can also be nothing <laughs> depending on the perspective that we take. And the difference in the perspective is enlightened versus unenlightened. So a Buddha can look at anything or hear anything or see anything or cognize anything in any way and see the completion and the realization of the complete dharma in that single thing. But an unenlightened person, they look at table and they see table and they see nothing other than table. So that's part of the Buddha's omniscience is that he can see everything in everything. And that's part of a lot of important meditative practices that have arisen in East Asian Buddhism as well. Another school that we'll talk about a great deal in the future called Tiantai in China or Tendai in Japan. This school believes that in a single thought moment, meaning in the single instant where a person has a thought in their minds, that thought contains within it 3,000 worlds. I'm not going to list them all. We'll discuss them in depth later on and discuss why they believe that that's how it is. But this meditative practice is seeking to give the practitioner the habit and the tools and the strength and the practice necessary to actually really digest that and understand that and have insight into that and realize that with every single thought that they have. And you can see how this comes to take up an enormous amount of brain processing power. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? You, you really have to cognize and process 3,000 things in every single thing. And then you're starting to get just a clue about what enlightenment allegedly really is like for a Buddha. So it's a really interesting way to view reality as well as to view the language and how we use it to understand reality. Okay, so we talked a bit about esoteric Buddhism, we talked a bit about Tiantai Buddhism, but we're going to get into those more in depth at a later time. The first school of Buddhism we're going to be talking about specifically will be next week. So, Nick, you want to talk to us about that a bit? Yeah, yeah. So join us next week where we will be discussing our first specific school of Buddhism in depth. What is Zen Buddhism? How does it differ from other Buddhist schools? What are its origins, and how does it reinterpret the earlier teachings that come before it? We hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And 
Time Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Our email is bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Bright Buddhism. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.